right. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of or the Gospel of John, and today we're we're bumping into chapter six, and uh, this is a, a an interesting chapter that we're going to go through because today we're going to study the miracle where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just two loaves or two pieces of uh, fish, two fish, little fish, and five barley cakes or loaves of barley bread or however it's translated. There's only five of them and they're not very big. Not a lot of food and Jesus is going to take that and multiply it and feed 5,000 people. And what's interesting about this miracle, well other than the fact that it's a miracle, that's pretty interesting in of itself, right? Pretty amazing. But other than that, what's interesting about this miracle is it's the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. Every other miracle is only found in, in a portion of the Gospels, but this is the only one found in all four Gospels. And what's interesting to me about that is that if it's going to be repeated that many times by God, because we know the Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit that inspired these things to be put here, if it's in there four times... Maybe it's something we should pay attention to. Maybe there's something that we should get from this. I'm going to go ahead and hazard a guess that it's important. Amen? And then after Jesus does this miracle, he actually uses this as an opportunity to share another spiritual truth. Matter of fact, the miracle portion that's actually feeding only, in, uh, only inhabits the first third of the chapter, what we're going to talk about today. The rest of the chapter is, is Jesus using these miracles to teach a spiritual truth and expounding on that truth. And what we found a few weeks ago was that the, the, the well in Samaria turned out to be an excellent place for Jesus to share that he was the fountain of living water. And now we're going to see that this, after feeding so many people and doing this miracle and providing for all of them, this is going to be a perfect place for Jesus to teach his disciples that he's actually the bread of life. And it's unfortunate because this turns out to be a very difficult teaching for a lot of his followers. We're going to find out in a couple weeks um, that this actual truth that Jesus shares causes a lot of his followers to stop following him. But with all that being said, let's go ahead and get started. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So as John continues the gospel, we remember last, last, uh, last week, last chapter, we were in Jerusalem. And we were at the pools of Bethsaida. You know, there's a lot of, of Beth and Bethsaidas and Bethsaidas and, and Bethesdas and the pools that were there in Jerusalem. <laughs> Hallelujah. See, now you guys got me all tongue twisted and made me lose where I was. You guys need to keep it down. Let me do what I got to do here. Hallelujah. After he's continuing his gospel, we're in Jerusalem. Now it says, after this. Now, this is one of those very technical and accurate terms of denoting how much time has gone by. Matter of fact, other translations translated as sometime after. So we can see how accurate this is. But I can tell you this, after doing a lot of research this weekend and looking into it, the Bible just says after this. It's not real clear, but doing some research, I have narrowed it down to be somewhere between as early as immediately and as late as three years. 
It's somewhere in that period. I know this because Jesus' ministry was only three years and he was crucified. It had to happen before then. So this is sometime between immediately and three years. Actually, if we look a little bit deeper, it's probably about a year later. But uh, um, anyway, since after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he went from Jerusalem. He has to go all the way back to the Sea of Galilee. So he's traveled a little bit. There's been stuff going on. And... Uh, uh, after he did the miracle in the, the pools of Bethesda, he goes ahead and makes his way back. And uh, um, while he's there, he decides to try to make his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you've ever seen a, uh, a picture of this, of this uh, sea, which is, I don't know, anybody ever read this? And, and in your mind, when you read the Sea of Galilee, you're like, oh, it must be a sea. It's not. It's just a really big lake. It's a big freshwater lake. It's not a sea. I was confused and I'm reading this, but it turns out it is a very big lake. It's like seven miles across, so it's not a tiny lake. But it is not, it's not a sea in the sense of it's not in the ocean. It's actually fresh water. But Jesus gets there. Him and his disciples are probably on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're hanging out. They're, they're doing their thing. And he decides to make his way to the other side. And on the other side of the lake, they call it the Sea of Tiberias. Now, if I could, I would go back and we would discuss with these individuals about how they name things. This is the Lake of Tiberias and the Lake of Galilee. But uh, anyway, a big freshwater lake. He makes his way to the other side. And, and what's happening is, is on the northwest side, we have, uh, uh, everyone calls it the Sea of Galilee. But on the other side, on the, on the more eastern side, there's a city there that was actually built and I wrote a note here who was built by Herod Antipas, and it was called Tiberias. And in this city, they called the sea Sea of Tiberias. So whenever you're reading the Gospels, it's not just here. If you hear them talking about the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, it's the same place. It just depends on which side of it that you're on, what you're going to call it. And by this time, Jesus is pretty popular, right? His ministry is starting to ramp up. Remember, we talked about um, it started uh, really at, the, uh, at Bethesda there, at the pools of Bethesda, was where his first really public miracle happened. And like I said, we're, we're going to see this is likely, and it's not for certain, right? You know, uh, sometime after is not super um, uh, helpful as far as, as the time, but um, it's probably about a year later that he's there. So for a year, Jesus has been doing miracles. The people are knowing about him. And, and he's becoming very popular. So when he makes his way over there, we find that he's got a large crowd following him. And they're following him because of all the stuff that he was doing, all the signs he was doing for the sick. He was healing the sick. And remember, healing the sick was one of the signs that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. But you're going to notice something different here, and it's this difference between followers and disciples. You see, the, the thing is, is that, and let me, let me be clear, disciples are also following Jesus, right? But there's a difference between just a follower and a disciple, because the disciples, this is what they're doing. They're focused on being with him. They're focused on having a relationship with him. They're focused on being obedient to him. They weren't in it for whatever Jesus could get for them. They weren't in it for some quick miracle so they could head back home. They wanted to be with Jesus, to learn, to study, to be with him. And the truth is, it actually cost them to follow Jesus. We know that they all turned away from whatever it is they were doing, and they just followed Jesus. But the followers... 
that it's talking about here are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're just followers. They're actually in it because they heard what Jesus was doing. They're hoping they can get their little piece. They're hoping they can get their healing, their miracle. There's a, uh, and, and obviously this is a very big generalization, right? We can't say this about every single follower, but in general, the followers were just looking for what they, they could get. And the, the reality is, is it's not a bad thing to seek the promises and the blessings of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But that can't be our end all and be all when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. You know, the, the reality is I've known so many people that when things are bad and they need a miracle, they're quick to, to turn to God. But as soon as, as, soon as uh, they get what they need, then they're back off to doing whatever they wanted to do. It's almost like they're treating God as some sort of like holy vending machine where they, they put in their quarter for a few minutes and then you know, get what they want, but then they're, they're off down the road. And, and that's the difference between someone who may be following Jesus. Yeah, they kind of believe in Jesus. They would say that they're a Christian, which depending on who they are may be debatable, but that's not for me to decide. That's for God to decide. But they, there's a difference between being a follower and a disciple. And then he goes on to, in, in verse 3 through 4, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we can probably assume that Jesus was taking his disciples up on the mountain to continue <laughs> teaching them. You know, that's, that's kind of Jesus' way. He gets his disciples aside. He explains things to them more thoroughly. So we can assume that's probably what he's, he's doing there. But then we notice something that's interesting in this is because it almost in some ways seems out of place. It says he takes them up to the mountain, he sits down with his disciples, and it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now there's a couple things to note about this. Is this is the second of three times that John specifically mentions the Passover. You remember the, the first time was in chapter 2 at the very beginning of this, with the first time Jesus was in Jerusalem was during Passover. The third is when Jesus went to, to Jerusalem, um, uh, where he returned to Jerusalem in chapter 12. And this is ultimately the, the time where he visits Jerusalem and he's ultimately crucified. So the first one was in chapter 2. The third one it was in chapter 12, where he's going to ultimately be crucified during that visit. And then um, the, the second one is right now. You also remember in chapter 5, uh, just last chapter, John mentioned the Feast of the Jews. And we sat there and we joked a little about it. We don't really know what it was because it's not real clear. But many scholars um, uh, believe that that was probably the Passover as well. So we, if, if that's the case, if he was at the pools of Beth Bethesda during Passover, we know that this sometime after or after this is about a year later that he goes ahead and gets here. We can also know that because we know Jesus' ministry lasted for about three years, and if we consider all of those Passovers, that means that this is the Passover before the Passover he's going to be crucified. So this is about a year before he's going to be crucified. He's been in his public ministry for a couple years now. Some other interesting things that you can denote from this is the way he words it. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. How many of you know that the Jews would have known what the Passover was? So the, this feast of the Jews was probably added for the benefit of Gentile readers who may not know what the Passover actually was, what was going on here. 
And we can also look at this, and we know that as we've read this and we've talked about, John is, is very fond of focusing on theology and on imagery and on, on themes in his writing. And it could be that the reason that he's making these, these denotations of one, when it is, the Passover, and, and for some reason just saying that Jesus is up on a mountain is because he's trying to draw a parallel between Jesus and Moses. He's trying to draw a parallel because um, in this time of year, the Jews are going to be thinking about Moses. They're going to be thinking about about, uh, being set free. And they're going to be looking towards those things. And and just like uh, Moses set them free from the bondage in Egypt, they're looking for another Moses to set them free from the bondage of the Romans. And also remember that, that Moses said that there would be a prophet to come, who we know refers to the Messiah. And while he's sitting there, Jesus goes ahead and he looks up. And it says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes, then, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So the crowd as we talked about, they're undeterred with Jesus taking off, trying to get in the mountains, trying to get away, trying to be alone with his disciples. They are undeterred. They got their eyes set on Jesus. They're following him. He's been doing miracles, and they, wanna, they want their miracle, so they're coming after it. And it could be maybe that they had already determined, seeing all the miracles and all the signs and what he's doing, maybe they had already determined that he was their Moses that was going to save them and, and, and get them out of their current captivity. So Jesus sees him coming up, and, and he looks to Philip, and he, he asks this kind of leading question. And he says, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And Jesus wasn't really asking this because he was in need of a solution. And I know this because, well, that's what it says. It says he said this to test him because he himself knew what he would do. See, I'm very clever when I study the Bible, and I just read what it says, and it turns out that most of the time it'll just explain it to you. So he already knew what he was going to do, so he asked this leading question to Philip. He's trying to draw something out of him. So he wants to see how Philip and really the rest of his disciples would react when asked to come up with a solution that in the natural had no answer. There was no solution to this problem. We're going to find out later that there's 5,000 people 5,000 men, which means there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people because they only counted the men. So that means there was probably a wife and at least one kid for every man. Um, And we can get a rough idea between 10 and 15,000 people. So Jesus sees this massive crowd coming. And there's no way, he knows that there's no earthly way that they would be able to feed that many people. And Philip may be wondering, I mean, why is he asking me? You You ever been put on the spot for something? I don't know, I, sometimes I just try to imagine what's going on through people's heads when this, we, we don't really get all the details and all the stuff. So can you imagine being put on the spot like this? And he must be wondering, well, maybe he's asking me because I, I don't live too far from here. Turns out that uh, the city that, that, that Philip is from is called Beth, Bethsaida. And it's about nine miles away from here. It turns out Andrew and Peter is also from here. I wonder if he's like, why don't you ask those guys? They live around here too. But... Uh, you know, it seems like a natural person to ask is Philip because he lives around here. He's a local. He should know what's going on. You know, so he's, he's going to ask them, if you want to know what's going on, what, what you can do in a local area, you want to ask a local. 
So he's asking Philip, you know, Philip, what, where, where can we go and buy bread for all of these people? And, G- and Jesus isn't really trying to trip Peter up or Philip up. He's not trying to make a mess of him. He's trying to give him an opportunity to actually express his faith, to see his faith grow. While simultaneously making it clear to everyone there is no earthly solution for this problem. You've got to understand that when we're dealing with miracles, it's because there has to be a miracle. Like the, the, When these things happen, it's because there's no other alternative. There's no other solution. And God was going to have to do a miracle to feed all of these people. So then in verse 7, it says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Philip responds, and it's interesting about this response to you. What did Jesus ask him? He said, Philip, where can we go to buy bread for all these people? And what does Philip respond? Not with a place where they could go buy bread or tell them there isn't a place where we go buy bread. Philip starts doing some mental math and starts putting stuff together. He looks out at the crowd. He's like, man, there's like 15,000 people. That's going to be a lot of food. So he says, he doesn't answer the question, where can we get food? He comes up with his own, his own answer and says, Jesus, even if I knew where we could get food, there's no way we could buy enough food. It would be impossible for us to go and buy enough food for everyone to get. He says, listen, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Now you've got to imagine what he's saying here. Anybody know what a denarii is? One day's wage. So 200 denarii is about eight months' wages. Can you imagine working for eight months to buy just barely enough for one night? That's crazy. That is a lot of food that was going to be needed, a lot of money that would have to be spent to feed all these people. And Philip, just like the rest of us, begins thinking in, in, in the natural. We begin thinking. Sometimes we forget who we're with. Sometimes we forget who's always beside us, who's always with us. And we're, we're, we're put up into a challenging situation, and the first thing that we do is begin to evaluate how we can do things on our own. What are the things that we have to do, the steps that we have to take? What's it going to be demanded of us to make this thing happen? And, and, and Jesus is just sitting there saying, listen, I'm here. Maybe you should think in a little bit different direction. Instead of looking at the world, maybe turn around and look at me. But no, Philip, he's, he's thinking just like that. And the truth is, is that we're going to see in multiple occasions <laughs> that even though the disciples were followers of Jesus, they had a relationship, they still thought like us all the time. Jesus rebukes them all the time as he's trying to teach them to look to him, but instead they keep looking to everything else. But after they're trying to figure this out, Philip's like, listen, Jesus, there's no way. We, we don't even have enough money. Andrew comes up with the actual answer to the question. Where can we get this food? It's like, there's this boy over here. He's got, he's got, we could steal his lunch. I mean, he's small. We can overpower him. We could probably just take it. He, wouldn't even, he couldn't say anything. And we got two little fish and five barley loaves. But then he says, but what are they for so many? 
Like I, <laughs> so Andrew is, is Peter's brother. He's usually subservient to Peter. You know, he's, he's the younger brother. And, and uh, I wonder what this looked like. Once again, I, 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 <laughs> I try to imagine how this situation went down. It was Andrew like the, the young one that nobody paid attention to, so he was trying to butt in in any way. He could, I got something, I got something. Do you remember in the, in the Old Testament where there's the, uh, the two runners that had to go take a message to the king? And they said, the, the, one, the one young kid who was younger said, they said, uh, no, we're not going to give you the message. We're going to give it to this person. They're going to run and go do it. He said, well, can I, can I run anyway? He said, fine, run. He runs. He runs all the way there. He beats the actual messenger and says, what news do you have? What news do you have? And he goes, I don't have any news. <laughs> he just wanted to be so, uh, part of it so bad. And I wonder if that's what Andrew's doing. He wants to be a part of what's going on. So, well, there's this, there's this little boy over here. He's got some, got some lunch. Oh, but, you know, what's that going to, that's not going to be enough to feed everybody. Or was it like, was he being sarcastic? Maybe he's a little sarcastic like I am, and he's, he's just being silly. Like, you know, like, have you ever been sarcastic with somebody just to kind of show them how silly what they're asking is? Maybe he's trying to show Jesus how silly a question this is. Like, Jesus, we got a lunch here, but it that's not going to be enough. I don't know what happened. I, I, I would love to have been there to see some of this stuff. I, I, want, I wonder what their interactions were like. Because the thing that I know is that, that even though technology changes throughout time, people don't change. That means there had to be some people cutting up. There had to be some sarcastic folks. There. I, I wonder what it would have been like. I bet it would have been fun. But we, what we do realize is that uh, the end result that we come up with is we have a problem that has no earthly solution. There's no way out of it. There's nothing that men can do in this situation to resolve this problem. There's not enough food nearby to take care of this problem. And even if there was, there's not enough money to buy the food. And so often, miracles are like this. Matter of fact, I think most miracles are like this because I think God wants to make a point. You can't do this without me. Right? You remember Gideon? He was the, the least in his clan, which was the clan that was the least of all the clans. And God said, you know what? I can use you. Nobody thought Gideon was coming out of his own strength and doing the things that Gideon does. They know that it was God because that's the only way it could have happened. And what about David? He was young, untrained in battle, couldn't even fill out a suit of armor, and he goes up and he defeats Goliath. Nobody... Was under the, the, nobody was under the illusion that that was David that did that in his own strength. That was God with him. And he, David wasn't even under the illusion. He went out there in the name of God, and he said, I'm going to do it because my God is with me. When we got into this building, we uh, saved up money. As we were doing church in my house, we had saved up uh, quite, a, uh, a, quite a substantial sum of money so that we, thought, we felt we were ready to get into this building. And when we came in, I figured we were going to be about $1,000 in the whole a month. Um, but we had saved some money up, and I figured, you know what? That'll, that'll cover us until um, you know, we grow and we, and, and we have the resources to continue maintaining things on its own. And uh, so we got in, and boy, was I wrong. We were in the hole way more than $1,000 a month. And it didn't take very long till I got to a point where I had to say, God, if you don't do something now, we're not making the lease payment next month. We just don't have it. You guys want to know what happened? From that month forward, we've always had enough 
to pay the bills here. And God's just trying, and I know exactly what God was trying to tell me. Like, listen, I want you to understand that what happens here has nothing to do with, your, with your, the things that you've done. So, so you save some money. That doesn't last forever. You know, your wisdom, your, your thought to save money, like that's, that's not what's going to do. You need to trust in me. And it came to a point where there was no other choice. My savings, my wisdom, the things that I did, they weren't going to save us because we, my, my, my resources were expended. And then when I finally said, all right, God, it's up to you, then he steps in and a miracle takes place. The exact moment that it had to change, it changed. Because God is faithful. Now, I'm not saying it's not a good idea to save money. You need to be wise with your finances. We still save money now, but God was able to teach me an important lesson that no matter the things that I'm doing, it is him that is sustaining us here, amen? And then look at our Savior. He came as a baby. That's amazing to me because that's just about the least durable person that could come to save the world as a baby. I mean, think of all the ways that could have gone wrong. Mary could have rolled over on him in the night. There is Savior gone. But no, we, we need to make it clear that, listen, what's going to happen is God's doing. And I think that's the way all miracles are. There can be no doubt. At least a lot of them. God does them in that way so that we're not confused at who is accomplishing what is being accomplished. Amen? So we know here there's no way men could have done it. There's no way to look around it. There's no way to find another solution, which is interesting because we're going to talk about something in a second where there are some scholars out there who think that this didn't, a miracle didn't actually take place here. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But to me, it's obvious that's the only thing that could have happened was a miracle. <clears throat> so in verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when, he had eaten their fill, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So after we've determined that there's no earthly solution that man can come up with to solve this problem. Jesus says, you know what? Have everybody sit down. We know from the other Gospels that this is recounted in is that he had them sit them down in, in groups of 50 to 100. And this does a couple of things. One, it makes them easy to kind of count, see how many people are there, but it also makes it easier to distribute food when it's not just one mass of people. They can actually walk between them. And it's odd. Like I said, sometimes John puts stuff in here that just seems weird. So Jesus said, have the people sit down now, there was much grass in that place. <laughs> Why is that in there? As he's just trying to, listen, Jesus is a nice guy. He made sure the ground they sat on was soft. Is that what he's trying to tell us? Or maybe it's a reference to the Psalm 20 through 2 when he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. I don't think John does a lot of things by accident or silliness. 
But all in all, there's 5,000 men there. The, the Greek word here actually specifically refers to male individuals. So there's 5,000 men here, which, like I said, means likely there's 10 to 15,000 people there, considering uh, if, you, if you include women and children. And then before Jesus starts to distribute the food, he gives thanks to God. Because even Jesus wants everyone to understand that there can be no doubt where this is coming from. This is coming from God. Amen? And so what starts out as just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread now has multiplied as it's distributed. It's funny. <laughs> we talked about this uh, miracle in our Bible study on Wednesday nights, and, and it, it, I found it interesting how different we all pictured this happening in our head. I think it was you, you, you pictured it just, or no, who was, was it? Was it you, uh, Mary, Marianne? Or was it Roy that said the, the miracle, just a, the food just appeared? Or was, it, uh, or was it the study? Was it the study we were watching that said that the food just appeared out of nowhere? And that's not how I've always imagined it. I've imagined it kind of like the oil being poured out. Like every time Jesus reached into the basket, a fish came out, you know? Not that it all just, just appeared in front of everybody. And I don't think it really matters. It was a miracle either way. <laughs> Either way, but it's, it's interesting to me how different people think of it differently. But Jesus distributes the food. Everybody has enough. It says that not only did they have enough, it says they had as much as they wanted. Now remember, a second ago, 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to buy if they could find it enough to give everybody a little. But when God steps in, not only is there a little for everybody, they had as much as they wanted. And then it says they ate their fill, and then afterwards, Jesus says, you know what? Go out and gather up all that's left over. You see, Jesus is always teaching in these situations. First, he taught them that, listen, when there's, there's no earthly solution, there's, there's a godly one. And then he says, when God comes to the rescue, when God does something, not only is there enough, but there's an abundance. They had 12 basketfuls left over. Two fish and a few loaves turn into feeding everybody to their full as much as they wanted and 12 basketfuls left over. You see, where the disciples, when Jesus asked them the question, where the disciples saw lack, God showed abundance. God showed to be more than enough. And I think we can also learn an important lesson from the little boy. Because, you know, he didn't have very much. He had a couple little fish. And he had a few barley cakes. Some translations say barley cakes. Barley. My, the impression that I get is these aren't like, you know, massive loaves of bread. These are little cakes that the little boy has. And, uh, uh, and the disciples come up to him, boy, give me your lunch. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what was going through this little boy's head. I don't know if, if he was just doing what he was told or if maybe he had some inkling of what was going on so he, he trusted Jesus and he gave him his lunch. I don't, I don't know. But I do know that for us, even when we only have a little, we should be willing to give it to God. I think that if we would do that consistently, we'd be amazed at the outcome of what that kind of faith produces in our life. And then when it was all said and done, in verse 14, it says, the people saw the sign that he had done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. See, after the people saw this sign, 
they were amazed. I mean, they, they, they understood there was no food, and now all of a sudden there was tons of food. And they immediately proclaimed that Jesus was the prophet of whom Moses had spoken. And then in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah declared that the Messiah would prepare a feast for all people. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain. Hmm, maybe that's why John mentioned the mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. You see, the people understood what was going on. The signs that were happening, the miracles that Jesus was doing were all pointing to Jesus being the Messiah. They all pointed to Jesus. And they understood that. They said, this is indeed the prophet of whom Moses spoke. And the prophet of whom Moses spoke pointed to the Messiah. And like I said, I learned something interesting while I was studying this section is that there were some people who claimed that this wasn't actually a miracle. That what actually happened is this, all the people around were so inspired by the little boy's willingness to share their food that they all shared their food. And that's how everybody had enough to, to eat. And I, I, I'm like, this just seems silly to me. Nothing in this passage lines up with that. Nothing in this passage lines up with that. Especially with the way the people reacted. Can you imagine everybody having this kind of, this is indeed the prophet that Moses was talking about because he encouraged us to share. Does that, does that what that reads to you? No, a miracle happened. A miracle took place. Food multiplied where there was no food. Now there was the bad, just food kept coming out as it was being distributed and there was 12 basketfuls left over. A miracle took place this day. But even though they understood correctly that this was the prophet whom Moses was talking about, they misunderstood who the prophet would be, what he would do. Because Jesus had his purpose from God, but they were going to come, it says in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, the people said, oh, this prophet, the Messiah, he's going to come and rescue us from Rome, Roman rule, Roman bondage and slavery. That's what they were expecting. You know what? We don't care if he wants to or not. We're going to grab this guy. We're going to make him king. We're going to mount an army and we're, we're marching towards Rome. But they misunderstood the purpose of Jesus, what he was there to do. The thing that they misunderstood is that Jesus' kingdom was not given by man, but it was given by God. His purpose was not to free them from the bondage of the Romans, but to free them from the bondage of sin and death. And the reality is, is the one day that he will rule and reign as the Lion of Judah. But at this time, he first had to serve as the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the entire world. So before they could grab him and try to impose their will on him, he takes off. He heads back into the mountains to be alone and pray. And then in verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got onto the boat and started across the sea to, to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them, and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now here begins the account of Jesus walking on water. Another 
miracle that Jesus does. And the truth is, is that the other Gospels that have this is Matthew and Mark. It's not in Luke, but it is in Matthew and Mark. This is the leanest account of what happens here. Matter of fact, in Matthew, we get the whole, the whole shebang. He comes out in the water. He calls Peter out in the boat, right? Peter walks on water. It's this whole big ado. And, and, and what you'll notice is that the other two accounts focus on the miracle and how it impacted the people, the disciples, as they saw the miracle. To John, he was, wasn't really concerned with that. He's just concerned with showing that this was a miracle, and it's another miracle that points that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the point. You see, John seems to be more interested in, in the theology of what's going on, and the other, the other Gospels are, are, are really histories of what happened. You know, So, as evening comes upon them, disciples head down to the sea where they're preparing to head off. And uh, it's interesting to me that they just take off without Jesus. Now, I guess you do get a little more information from the other Gospels. Turns out Jesus told them to just take off. But, but I wonder what's going through their head. Like, I mean, Jesus is their leader. And, and he tells them to head off across the, across the lake. You know, this is a big lake. They got to row across it. And, and uh, I, I wonder, what, like, where's Jesus? How is he going to get across? You know, what's the deal? I mean, is, is he not coming with us? What's going on? Is he going to catch up to us later? Is he going to find another boat? Does he like somebody else better than us? Is that why he wants to ride in their boat? I, don't, I bet they thought stuff like this. They were just as petty as us, right? Remember the two sons of thunder? Like, make sure that we're, they even had mom. <laughs> mom, go tell Jesus to make sure that we're, we're on, on his right and left hand. You know, that we're going to be, be, be elevated. His disciples were just like us. I wonder what's going through their head. But they just take off without Jesus. Jump in the boat and they're heading out. And then when they do so, they started across the sea, and it's now dark. So they, they had left when it was light. They've been rowing for some time, and it's now dark. The sea had become rough. There had become a strong wind. And, and that's actually, we're going to find out in, a, in the next verse, they're only about halfway across the lake. And the reason why they're having such a hard time is because the wind's blowing so hard, and they're trying to row into it. Anybody ever been out rowing in the wind? So I used to, when I was younger, we'd go out to Patagonia, and we'd grab the rowboats, and oh, is it tricky because you get in one, and if you, if you hook a right, it almost seems like the water blows from, from if you're coming out of the, 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 the docking area, the water blows from left to right across the, a lot, across the lake because you get out there and you're like, I'm going to go down there. You're like, this isn't so bad. It's because you got the wind on your back. But when you have to come back, you just about die. Your arms just about fall off and you can't get anywhere. You can't, and that's when you're wishing you had a motor like nothing else. So they're, they're, they're rowing into this wind. They're, they're getting beat up. They're not making anywhere. It's been several hours. It was daylight. Now it's dark. They're only halfway across this seven-mile mile, uh, uh, lake. And, and, and these are, some of these guys are seasoned sailors. Like they, this is something that they did. Shouldn't have been that big of an, of an issue. And uh, we, I do think we see some improvements here, though, right? Because if we look, uh, we know from the other Gospels, particularly in Mark 4, 35 through 41, they had previously dealt with a storm. Right? You remember Jesus was asleep, the storm got bad, and they're all freaking out, and they're like, Jesus, don't you even care about us? This time the storm's coming on, and we don't have any indication that they're afraid of the storm, right? So they're growing. Thumbs up, right? Things are going good, but they are getting their butts kicked by the wind. And uh, if we go on to the next verse, it says that in, in verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened, but he said to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." And then, when they were glad to take, and then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
the other gospels actually give us a better idea of how long this is taking. It's been several hours that they've been rowing this boat, and they're only halfway across, three or four miles. And Jesus, we know from the other gospels, he looks down from the beach and he sees them just struggling. And now he's just going to pass them by. He's just going to walk by again. But anyways, he's walking across the lake. The, the disciples see them, and, and, and they get afraid. So they're doing good. Now they're not afraid of the storm, but they are afraid of, of people walking across the water up to them, which is understandable, right? Like, I think I can, I can relate to them. If I was out on the boat and I look over and there's some dude walking across the water, if it was a still night and the water was perfectly clear, I would be a little concerned about somebody walking across the water. But imagine... You're out on the boat, rowing as hard as you can. You're not getting anywhere. The, the, the waves are up, the wind is up, and you also got this dude who apparently just walked three or four miles like it was nothing through the water, on top of the water, and you see him. I think I would be a little bit afraid too. And they call out Jesus, or they call out, or rather Jesus called out to them and says, listen, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus comforts them when they see what they thought was a ghost. And when he got in the boat, the boat is immediately on land. Now, there have been some times in Patagonia where I wish Jesus would have gotten a boat with me so I didn't have to row all the way back. But one thing that I think that we can take from the situation, right? We already know that John's using these miracles to point to that the Jesus isn't like everybody else. He's not like the other prophets. He's doing miracles that flow. Even, even Elijah, when he, he fed um, something like 200 people with 100 loaves of bread, like it was, it, was, it was a pretty amazing multiplication. But what Jesus does, the ratio is much higher. This is a miracle of much greater magnitude. And then we have Jesus walking on water, and, and that points even more to him being the Messiah. He's not like the rest of them. And that's good. We need to understand that Jesus is the Lord of Lords the King of Kings. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is God come to earth. But we can still learn other things from this. And I think the most important thing that we can take, care of, take away from this is that when we're out in our boat and we're facing some strong headwinds, when we're facing turbulent seas, or when we see stuff that may frighten us, we need to remember that Jesus is with us, saying, listen, I'm here. Do not be afraid. No matter what circumstances or obstacles that we face, that's something that should give us comfort. And the truth is, you know, we can look around the world and see all the stuff that's going on. Stuff's not going well in Ukraine and, and Russia. And actually the fact that it's not going well for Russia is what makes it even more dangerous <coughs> for us. Talks of, of, of uh, nuclear armaments being used. We look at what's going on with the economy, and it's not even just a U.S. thing where the economy is messing up. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing some pretty rough global, global economic signs of recession, and, and things aren't looking good. I look around just in our church, and it seems like we're dealing with a lot of attacks of the enemy with people not doing well, being sick or dealing with stuff. But you know what? In the midst of all these things, we don't have to be afraid because we can know that Jesus is right there with us. And he'll see us through anything that we have to deal with. Now, I don't know if when he gets in our boat, if, bang, we're going to be on the other side, or if he's just going to sit in the boat with us as we make it through it. But I do know this, he will see us through, amen. And we don't have to be afraid because he is there.